On January 6, 2021, the world watched as armed citizens violently entered the U.S. Capitol building in an effort to express their displeasure at the results of the 2020 presidential election. You know, pundits described this as an insurrection where a small band of Republicans worked to try to overturn those results. I remember sitting there watching news coverage through my computer, watching this footage as this protest turned riot unfolded, thinking like, how on earth did we get here? Now, I knew what I saw was not representative of all Republicans, but I also couldn't deny that the gulf between the positions of the Democrats and the positions of the Republicans had never felt so far from one another, so splintered as it did in that moment. Now, I am a moderate Democrat, and I reached out to my dad, who is a lifelong Republican and uh, is a supporter of Donald Trump. And I asked him, kind of in the wake of this, if we could exchange a series of letters where we could share our positions and ask questions about the positions of our political opposites. So we did. We exchanged a couple of letters. But just after a few letters, we we stalled out. The process became so unwieldy as we tried to address the questions that the other person presented to us and then bring up our own questions. Right? They just seemed to pile on one another. A one-page letter, you know, a couple iterations later was like seven handwritten pages. The material was so expansive that it was hard to make any progress with it. But in that exercise, my desire was to try, in just one relationship, to listen to others and be heard myself. My hope was that if we could acknowledge the good in each other's positions, even if we disagreed in the end, that it could provide hope that what was done on the small scale might actually be possible to be done on a much larger scale, like a national level. Now, I use our political discourse as an example just to show how fractured we are as human beings. Right? If it isn't the insurrection, we debate and diminish one another, uh, one another over vaccines and masks and stimulus packages. The list could go on and on. Right? And I know this is an extreme example, but one doesn't need to look very far in our daily experience to see that conflict is a regular part of our lives. Right? Conflict is a fact of life. The only way that you could probably be free of conflict is to move to an uninhabited island, live by yourself far away from the rest of humanity. But but I would imagine if you did that, you would eventually devolve into some conflict with yourself in some way. So folks, we just got to face it. We got to deal with conflict. Now, as I'm speaking, there might be situations that are coming to mind that you're engaged in some type of conflict with someone else a family member, a co-worker, a friend, a spouse, a child, right? We are inundated. Maybe there's like a whole host of them that have come to mind because we are inundated with conflict. So what can be done about it? Over the last two months, we've been studying the gospel-centered life. We've been looking at if we centered our lives around the gospel, 
then it goes to reason that the gospel ought to say something to all facets of life. Everything that we face, we want the gospel to be the center of our life. And we want to see, does the gospel speak to conflict as well as a regular part of our life? As we consider these regular experiences of conflict, I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this. How do you find yourself trying to resolve these sources of conflict? Are you handling conflict with the full arsenal that you have at your disposal in the gospel? Or are you trying to resolve them, to solve it by the flesh? It's the word that Paul uses in the New Testament to describe our human striving. Are we trying to solve these conflicts through our own human intuition and our human attempts? As we consider what it means to attempt to resolve conflict in light of the gospel, we need to acknowledge that the ultimate desire in conflict ought not to be to win the fight or to be right, but to bring renewal in our relationships. You know, that reflection song after the offering that we just listened to, the chorus was saying that I know that God will fight for me if I would be still. Now, I'm not saying, as you're going to see in a moment, that's not advocating that we just be passive in conflict, but ultimately, who do we trust to fight our battles? Who do we trust to acknowledge the difference between right and wrong? Because if we, if, if we put that responsibility on ourselves, we're going to be sorely disappointed or sorely aggravated in that process. So I want to start by looking at two different stereotypes of conflict. These, I think, are examples of what it means for us to handle conflict by the flesh. They're stereotypes. Stereotype means that they may not, you may not perfectly align with one side or the other, but I think they demonstrate the most common behaviors that we resort to when we engage with others over an issue. So those two portraits are going to be attackers and withdrawers. So let's start with attacking. Try this on and see if it fits. You may be an attacker if you place a high value on justice. You find yourself in a skirmish and you turn, to the, you turn into that prosecuting attorney who is just trying to get to the bottom or the source of the conflict. Right? The focus of your argument is on who is right and who is wrong. As a result, you are keen to push the focus off of yourself and onto your opponent, removing culpability and projecting it on others, right? Because conflict is always someone else's fault because you are in the right, right? You may be an attacker if you deal with your anger and frustration by venting it. Now, that doesn't mean that you always come across as angry. When you fight, you want to fight until it is over, Right? You want, perhaps even demand, resolution to the disagreement. At times, winning can be more important to you than loving the person sitting across from you. Right? You don't mean to hurt feelings, you don't mean to step on toes, but you are right and you're not going to relent until the other person sees things your way. On the opposite end of the spectrum are withdrawers. It's kind of a hard word to say, withdrawers. You might be a withdrawer if your MO is to avoid or ignore conflict. 
You know, you just want to sweep it under the rug where you don't have to think about it and hope that it resolves itself. You often keep your opinions to yourself in an effort to keep the peace. While an attacker focuses on winning an argument, someone who who withdraws would rather avoid the fight altogether than win it. Withdrawers deal with their anger and frustration by suppressing it. But you, you can't ever fully suppress it. So it comes out channeled in forms that are passive-aggressive behaviors. If you find yourself in, engaged in conflict, you might find yourself always on the defensive in an argument. Or you might leave that argument needing space because you want to protect the emotional status quo and you will do whatever you can to preserve that peace even if it means getting walked all over. Now going through these portraits kind of, you know, to add some levity, kind of cracks me up a little bit because I am a classic attacker and Sarah is a classic withdrawer. Right, and so as you can imagine, in the nature, Sarah's my wife, for those of you that don't know. So as you can imagine, it made dealing with conflict between the two of us a really, like a minefield for us to navigate. Right, my background, the way that I was raised, was to deal with conflict head on. You just get all that junk out there so that you know what you're dealing with. Sarah instead would want to keep things to herself, you know, Ask questions like, why do we have to talk about this now? Like, this makes me feel really uncomfortable. I was dealing with a lot of insecurity in our fights, and so I would push to finish the fight then and there. Right? I didn't want to, to be stuck in this instability of her still being mad at me because I was convinced that if, she, if, she just, if I just said it one more time the right way, she would see that I was right in the end. But sometimes conflict would become so overwhelming for Sarah that she needed space. She needed to walk away from it. Now, these are the dispositions that the two of us have had over the years. And we're not perfect at it, but we've learned a lot from one another of what it means to value the person above the subject of the argument. So where does the gospel come in in all of this? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's open our Bibles. Let's turn to Galatians 2. Bibles or Bibles apps, whatever you feel most comfortable with. Now, this is one of the many conflicts in the early church. You would think, right, that these are the people who were closest to Jesus. Jesus had just, you know, ascended to heaven. He provides his Holy Spirit to equip and give them wisdom and discernment. But you know what? The early church was, in many ways, a mess. There, there was conflict all over the place because even being filled with spirit, there is an element of our sinful nature that doesn't always want to stay dead. And when two people with sinful natures come together, you're, you're bound to have conflict. So there are a lot of them in the early church. But this one in particular, I think, can serve as a model for us as we consider uh, when we find ourselves in arguments with others. Because some of the other conflicts dealt more with like systems and the structure and style of the church. And this one dealt with kind of a in interaction between two individuals. So Galatians 2, I'm going to read 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Right, so here's the background on this. One of the biggest questions that the early church faced was, do Gentiles need to obey the Jewish law in order to be saved? Right, because all of the first Christians were Jewish. Jesus was a Jew, a good following, synagogue-attending Jew. And there's all those Old Testament laws that they all observed. When Jesus came, right, there was this discussion of him fulfilling the law, not abolishing it, but fulfilling it. And so where did that that lead? And then we see this extra piece where through the book of Acts, we see the gospel now not just being rooted in Jewish culture, but also Gentile culture. So what did that mean? Did the Gentiles have to, you know, obey to be saved? And so there were many different factions in the church with different questions to that answer or different answers to that question, excuse me. And as you can imagine, conflict ensued. And this is largely in Acts chapter 15 is the first council of the church, council of Jerusalem. And this is the primary uh, debate, the primary question that they addressed. So in this particular situation as described in Galatians, you have Peter as the primary offender. You see, Peter knew that Jesus had thrown off the shackles of the law. He understood that Gentiles were welcomed into the people of God. And this is largely what Acts chapter 10 is about, right? Peter, if if you're familiar with the story, Peter has this vision where these clean and unclean animals descend on a sheet from heaven and God says, hey, take and eat. And Peter's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. God's like, who are you to call common, that's the language they use, unclean, the things that I have said are clean, the things that I've created. And we we might talk about that and think about it in terms of kosher laws, but what the the deeper issue in that had to do with people, with the ethnocentricity of the Jewish people, that they were the chosen people of God and the only ones that that were a benefactor to his promise. And right on the heels of that, you have this vision seeing itself worked out in a case study when Peter goes to visit Cornelius, a Gentile, and sees the Spirit of God descend upon him. So Peter knew, Peter understood that the Gentiles were welcomed in to the people of God. But all of a sudden, these these Jewish Christians, these legalistic Jewish Christians came to town preaching the continued relevance of the law, and Peter gets caught up in it. He wants to save face. He wants to look good before them. And so he begins to distance himself from the Gentiles in an effort to please these Jewish Christians. And so Peter, as we know, being such a prominent figure in the early church, started the dominoes falling so that the other Jews started to shun Gentiles, even to the point that Barnabas is led astray. And Paul says, man, this is a big problem because what he is observing here through Peter's behavior is in essence destroying the unity of the church that Christ died to bring together. So we've got a conflict. We're ripe for a conflict brewing. And then 
we get to the point of the story where Paul describes him confronting Peter, as we just saw in the text. Now, I just read the the passage. But I've got three take-homes for us from that passage, from Paul's interaction for Peter. First, Paul approached Peter publicly. He didn't avoid Peter and withdraw, hoping that it's going to work itself out in the end. He didn't turn to, you know, passive-aggressive behavior towards Peter, like, you know, suddenly take Peter off of his Christmas card list out of nowhere. He didn't gossip about the problem with, you know, all of his and Peter's mutual friends. You know, you ever have that where, you, you know, you're confessing someone else's sins? That's just gossip. Let's be honest. Paul is directly addressing the problem with Peter. Okay? Peter heard it firsthand through Paul, not through the grapevine. But what's more, Paul made the decision to confront Peter publicly. Now, the point of this, Paul's goal was not to shame Peter in front of the church community, but to adequately deal with the ramifications of the conflict. Because Peter's sin in this, withdrawing from the Jews, was committed publicly. And the result of that had ramifications far into the community. His behaviors led to a lot of other people engaging in similar sins. The text goes out of its way to state this. Peter's decision affected people other than himself. And so, you know, if we just say that Paul, you know, he should just go to Peter uh, privately and Peter repents, well, what about all the people that were affected by that, that aren't privy to that conversation, aren't privy to the fact that Peter says, you know what, guys, like, I made a mistake, I blew it. And again, we, we, Peter had the ability to, to acknowledge his fault because he had a, a great God. He learned what it meant to live in, lean in on grace. Right? The public nature of it was to make sure that all people who were affected were able to understand the ramifications and the resolution of that conflict. So what this means for us, it means that the way that we handle conflict is by going directly to the person, not dragging them on Facebook, not putting them on blast on Twitter, not showing your disapproval by suddenly blocking them on Instagram. Right? It's, not, it's not even by like communicating through text messages. But it also, at times, means that it's necessary to address in the context of a larger community. It's a private sin. It can be dealt with privately. But if it's public or had the ramifications into the lives of others, it may need to be dealt with in a space that those who were affected can weigh in or see that reconciliation. That's point one. Paul went directly to Peter to address it. Secondly, Paul's motivation for resolving the conflict is not self-interest, it's not self-preservation, but it is the sake of the gospel. That's why Paul said something about this. Paul's not fighting tooth and nail over this because his feelings were hurt. It's not a personal issue. Instead, Paul states that he wants to make sure that Peter knew that his behaviors were out of step with the truth of the gospel. Now, I think this is really important for us as we consider the place of conflict that we're engaged in. What is our motivation for trying to resolve that conflict? Are we just trying to win for ourselves? Or are we trying to bring greater renewal to our relationships? I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of the hills that we're willing to die on have more to do with our own self-preservation. 
We want resolution because of the ways that we have been negatively affected by the actions of the other person. Right? You know the saying, right? You, you've won the battle, but you've lost the war. You find yourselves farther apart than when you began. And I'm not saying that we should just let people walk over us. I'm not saying that we should never engage in conflict or fight for what is right. But I, th- this like win at all costs or win because my feelings were hurt, I don't think is, the, is how the gospel directs our lives. We are selfish creatures. But what we've seen over the last several weeks is that one of the consequences of the gospel taking root in our lives is that it frees us from being so focused, right? The burden of being so inwardly focused, my way or the highway. When we recognize God's love for us, we recognize that I don't need to to fight for my own respect. I don't need to fight for my own identity. I don't need to fight for my own preservation because I have a God in heaven who has declared all of those things on my behalf. My goal in, in resolving conflict is not that I just get a W under my belt or that I can preserve my way of life, but because God is at work restoring all things, I join in him with his restoration. Because the greater goal of conflict, I believe, in light of the gospel, is to see the relationship restored. To see those who were enemies be reconnected as friends, right? Because isn't that what the, the gospel did for us and God? We were enemies with God. And God, through his sacrifice, through his conflict resolution, provided an avenue that we could be friends and not just friends, but family with God again. That should be our underlying motivation when we enter and approach conflict. Lastly, Paul's approach to Peter, how Paul approached Peter, is he presented the issue plainly, and he invited Peter to respond. This wasn't a character assassination. It wasn't Peter, or excuse me, it wasn't Paul just lobbing accusations and then dropping the mic and leaving. Paul's goal in that conflict was to listen and to engage, to challenge Peter, to give him space to process, space to respond, and to walk with him in that path of healing. Especially if you are a typical attacker, it is important to not just be on the offensive all the time. You know, when Sarah and I have conflict, you could probably set a timer, and it's very probably not unlikely to be like an 80-20% split in terms of who's talking. And I might, be, I might be being a little generous with myself in that. Give your opponent some time and space to respond. Invite them into dialogue with you regarding the circumstances or feelings around the issue. Paul went to Peter. He p- issued the statement plainly and he allowed Peter time to respond. Now, I've been thinking about this. How do I take what I've just shared, what we see in the Scripture, and and bring it to application, you know, bring a take-home message for us? Because if we've seen, I think we would acknowledge that conflict permeates so much of our lives. You're all dealing with conflict somewhere. I'm confident of that. But I don't know the context of your fights. I can't tell you the right or wrong ways to solve that. I can't be the one that that mediates the conflict for you. 
But what I've been trying to do is helping us consider the way in which we engage in it, or perhaps even the way in which we might have some culpability in the conflict. Right? What has been your primary posture when you enter into these discussions? And I want to try to provide a gospel-centered framework to equip you to deal with it in a God-honoring way. Now, if you've been coming to our small group and you have one of those gospel-centered life um, little workbooks, uh, booklets, there's a chart on page 78 that I find really helpful. And I'm going to show it to you and walk it through you here. And so I tried to put it in here. You can't read any of that. So I, I typed everything out for you. All right. So the, there, there are three columns. So I'll just leave this up for the three columns because hopefully you can see that. So you have the aspect. But the three columns are what are typical of attacking, what are typical of withdrawing, and what does the gospel have to say to us in this? Now, people aren't static. There might be parts of this that you resonate with and parts of this that you don't. But my hope is to give us some understanding of our typical behaviors, where they come from, and richer, more robust ways for us to solve our problems. So let's start with our heart foundation. Attacking often comes from a place of self-righteousness. I am right, and you are wrong. Withdrawing is based around insecurity. There is fear of the fight. The gospel's foundation is based around what I talked about a few weeks ago, repentance and forgiveness. And what this does, the posture that we bring, is a recognition that in any conflict, there's going to be culpability on both sides. Every story has two sides. It doesn't mean that it is a 50-50 split of responsibility. Maybe it's only 10% your fault and 90% the other person's fault. But we begin out of the gospel, out of a place of humility, acknowledging and repenting of our own responsibility, which increases our ability to extend grace to the other person. This is largely what I preached about last week when we think about forgiveness, that it is not right for us to withhold forgiveness towards others, when we've experienced such lavish forgiveness from God. Put another way, right? We engage in repentance and forgiveness. We enter this because the important thing is I need to see my sin as part of the problem, not just the other person's sin, or or, we're just seeing their sin as a worse part of it than my own. All right, next is the power source. What fuels our engine? Attacking it is often pride. Withdrawing is fear. But the gospel reminds us that we aren't alone in, our, in this fight, right? That's what, you know, it says flesh pride, flesh fear, right? Because those things are us coming out of what we have as our own faculties. It's what Paul calls the flesh, our own self-attempt. But the New Testament is clear that we don't walk alone, that Jesus walks with us. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. But beyond that, that he has sent his counselor, his helper, paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to guide us to direct us, to provide wisdom, to provide discernment. Tap into that power when you seek to repair the relationships. Moving on, what is our commitment? What is it that we are looking for in conflict? The attacker wants to be right, which I would argue flows out of a place of insecurity. There's a need to prove oneself. It's one of those things whenever you're like, highlighting that you're right and you're defending yourself. You ever hear that statement like, are you trying to to convince me? You're trying to convince yourself right there. I think that reveals the insecurity. Withdrawers, on the other hand, declare a victory when they can avoid the fight and don't have to have it at all. 
But unfortunately, what happens when that happens, all the remnants of the conflict and the tension are still there. They're just hiding below the surface. The goal of the gospel, and we saw this with Peter and Paul and their interactions, to understand and engage. We shouldn't go into conflict with the concrete, like, desired outcome. Like, this is, you know, this will be, this conflict will be successful if I get A, B, and C. It's not a negotiation. But the goal, but we should be cultivating empathy for the person standing across from us. Right? We want to draw them out for mutual healing, not beating them into submission until they cry uncle. The, the next line says direction. Think of this as like our posture. Right? How do we carry ourselves in conflict? If you're an attacker, you probably focus on arguing and subduing. Right? You're like that prosecuting attorney I spoke of at the beginning, desiring to get to the bottom of it all. If you're a withdrawer, your desire is to get the heck out of there, get the heck out of that heavy conversation, and so you're going to be prone to deny and appease. Again, with the gospel, this is similar to the last point. Our direction should be to convey and invite, just like we saw Peter and Paul do. All right, let's keep going. Feeling and goal together. I have them separate. So life is safe, less painful, challenging, self-protection, peace, and God's glory in their guard. Attackers want life to feel safe for them. Their ultimate goal is self-protection in these debates. They don't like the tension of conflict any more than a withdrawer, but they approach resolution differently. And this was key. I alluded to this. This was key to some of Sarah's and my fights early on in our marriage. I had a lot of fear that if Sarah left, left the conflict before it was over and before it was resolved, that she would abandon me. Right? It was my own insecurity that kept me in it until that conflict was resolved because I couldn't handle the tension. It might not sound counterintuitive, but I think insecurity is what often puts us on the offensive. But withdrawers want to be, life to be painless, and so they're looking for peace and often end up being doormats as a result, just to get it over with. But the gospel reminds us that life is hard. The journey to salvation was not easy. It had many costs along the way. God desired to reconcile. His desire to reconcile meant that he put aside his privilege and he suffered alongside of us and suffered for us. Anytime that there are hurt feelings and broken situations that we encounter, the solution is not going to be easy. But we aren't in it for our own self-preservation. Just like Jesus dirtied his hands by becoming inhuman and suffering, we also roll up our proverbial sleeves and we work towards the glory of God in the goodness of the person. The results of wielding these stereotypes. Attackers often leave others feeling hurt. It may drive division even more, making you feel like you're farther apart than when you started. Withdrawers leave feeling bitter or resentful and a remnant of an emotional separation. Perhaps to the point that we stop opening ourselves up to be vulnerable with others in order to spare ourselves pain. But the goal of the gospel should be to bring healing and reconciliation to our lives. We join with God, the great restorer, to see restoration occur, excuse me, in the relationships in our lives. I've got three brief things that I want to leave you with, and then we'll sing a song and head home. As I'm sure different conflicts that you're currently engaged in come to mind, three things that I want to preach out of this. I want, us, I want us to, I have a very high view of empathy 
that we need greater empathy with one another. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of someone else. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, that if anyone asks you to go a mile with them, go two. It's meant to be, it's him illustrating that life is meant to be done together. Listening and learning from one another is crucial to our development as humans. And this advice is doubly true if you have a propensity to be an attacker. Listen to the feelings of your opponents. From it, you can learn a lot about them and what they're experiencing in the conflict. It's kind of like the idea of a, I don't know if you ever heard of what a, a, a straw man is in an argument. Straw man is whenever you create, you know, you, you describe your opponent's position in such a way that it is like a straw man that can be easily toppled. It's important to learn and listen why people might have different opinions than ourselves. I think empathy is big to that. Second, even in the fight, though, it is important to have confidence, especially if you are a withdrawer. Don't be a doormat. The gospel does not mean that we should be taken advantage of and walked all over, right? Just for the sake of peace. The gospel gives us confidence, not in ourselves, but because of the love that we experience from God. We are sons and we are daughters of the living king of all creation, and that should stand for something. So hold to the confidence and power that you have in God's Holy Spirit. Lastly, when I I help people, um, I I deal with conflict a lot in my own life, and I have, as a pastor, people come to me all the time with conflict. And, And when I'm engaging and helping people walk through that conflict, there's a question that I always ask. And the question is, what is the place of grace in your conflict? Now, that question can mean a number of different things. It might mean places where you need to recognize God's grace for yourself, or you need to receive the grace or grace from another person. But for sure, at a minimum, where are the places that God has called you to respond in showing grace to whoever you are currently embattled with? You might have felt real burned by them. But God has shown us grace and instructs us to pass that grace on to others. God's gospel, if it is the center of our lives, should allow us to just pour out, to effuse grace. May that grace be the foundation that we are rooted in when we encounter trouble. Conflict, problems, arguments with others. May we use it to seek reconciliation. May we use it to seek their good. Not my own good, but their good. And to also, all, in all things, pursue the glory of God. Let me pray. Lord, over the last two months, we have seen that there is a gulf that continues to exist between your goodness and your holiness and how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of our frailty and brokenness as a human being. May we continue to experience your grace. May that cross loom larger in our lives. And out of that, may it be the catalyst for us to be gospel-centered in our resolution of conflict. Lord, that it's not about being right, that it's not about avoiding pain, but it's about seeing restoration and reconciliation of people, of relationships, of things. That it is one manner where you have invited us to join the family business of yourself. To see your kingdom more fully come in this place. 
Give us the means and the motivation and the power to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.